Samuel chapter 13 tonight. First Samuel chapter 13 tonight. And we're going to begin reading in verse number 1. And uh, maybe more so than any message this week, we kind of put different, different titles or, or qualifiers on different messages this week. I want to make sure uh, uh, that I'm not misunderstood tonight. I believe that the ministry is the greatest job in the world. My dad uh, uh, is a pastor, still is a pastor, is raised in a preacher's home, and he often told me that. that the ministry is the greatest job in the world. Preaching is the greatest job in the world. Sometimes it's the greatest job in the world because it's wonderful. And sometimes it's the greatest job in the world because of the magnitude of the task. But it is always the greatest job in the world. And I, I hope that if, if you know me at all, you know that about me, that I really do believe that the, the ministry is the greatest job in the world. Uh, there's nothing else I'd, I'd rather do. There's nothing else I'd, I'd rather be doing. I've heard preachers say, well, an hour of preaching in the pulpit is like eight hours of digging a ditch. And uh, I've thought to myself, that pastor's never dug a ditch because I'd whole lot rather be an hour in the pulpit than eight hours of digging a ditch. And uh, I love what God has called me to do. And I'm thankful that uh, we get to participate in it tonight and trust we'll be able to be a blessing to you. Let's all stand. First Samuel chapter 13 and verse number one. First Samuel chapter 13 and verse number one. Saul reigned one year. And when he had reigned two years over Israel, Saul chose him 3,000 men of Israel, whereof 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash in Mount Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan in Gibeah of Benjamin. And the rest of the people he sent every man to his tent. And Jonathan smote the garrison of the Philistines that was in Geba. And the Philistines heard of it. And Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard say that Saul had smitten the garrison of the Philistines, and that Israel also was had in abomination with the Philistines. And the people were called together after Saul to Gilgal. Now, I just want to pause. Uh, social media didn't exist. So they're, they're spreading the word by trumpets. They're spreading the word person to person. Uh, Saul has divided up his forces. He's got 2,000. He's got Jonathan with 1,000. The rest of the men he allowed to return home, back to their families and whatnot. And not long after, Jonathan gets into a fight with a Philistine garrison, approximately two to 300 men. There's some significant dispute as to how much a Philistine garrison would have been at this time in history. But Jonathan slays that Philistine garrison. And uh, the Bible says that uh, there at the end of, uh, notice if you will, in verse number, at the end of verse number three, it says, And Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. Um, Israel's pretty excited about slaying the Philistine garrison. And uh, the Philistines that were in Gibeah heard of it. The Bible said there, verse number three. Verse number four, now Saul is calling the people back so that they could fight. They're aware that a battle is going to take place. And the people were called together after Saul to Gilgal. So he sends the message out. A, a fight has done been started, all right? We threw the first punch. Philistines are coming back, and it's, it's on, all right? Here we go, verse number five. And the Philistines gathered themselves together to fight with Israel. 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, and people as the sand, which is on the seashore in multitude. And they came up and pitched in Michmash, eastward from Beth Haven, when the men of Israel saw that they were in a strait. For the people were distressed. Then the people hid themselves in caves and in thickets and in rocks and in high places and in pits. And some of the Hebrews went over Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilgal. As for Saul, he was yet in Gilgal, and all the people followed him, trembling. And so 
people began to respond to Saul's call up for army. And as they come up, they see the Philistines and what they're up against, and they leave. They go hide in caves and thickets and rocks and high places. Verse 7, it goes beyond that. They even, some are traitors. Uh, they cross over to the Philistine side. They, they join what they perceive to be the winning team, the winning side. <clears throat> so tall, Saul is waiting uh, for the army to come. Many of them will not come because they are hiding or joining the other side. Verse 8. And he tarried seven days according to the set time that Saul or Samuel had appointed. But Samuel came not to Gilgal, and the people were scattered from him. And Saul said, Bring hither a burnt offering to me, and peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. It came to pass that as soon as he had made an end of offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him, that he might salute him. And Samuel said, What hast thou done? Saul said, Because I saw that the people were scattered from me. Now camest not within the days appointed, that the Philistines gathered themselves together at Michmash, Therefore said I, the Philistines will come down now upon me to Gilgal, and I have not made supplication unto the Lord. I forced myself therefore and offered a burnt offering. Samuel said to Saul, Thou hast done foolishly. Thou hast not kept the commandment of the Lord thy God, which he commanded thee. For now would the Lord have established thy kingdom upon Israel forever. <clears throat> Our title, Pressures on Leadership. Pressures on leadership. Lord, would you uh, help me as I preach tonight? And Lord, may it be very clear. May it be without apology. And yet, Lord, may it be with, the, with the, the best spirit that could ever, Lord, be conceived of or thought of, Lord, inside of a human. Lord, I mean that. I, I, I don't want to be misunderstood or, or to injure anyone in our attempt to defend someone else. Lord, would you help the word to, to land on soft hearts? May we... Maybe see things from a different perspective we never considered before. And Lord, may most of all you be pleased by what is said and done here tonight. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. <clears throat> Pressures on leadership. There's different jobs that carry with them different amounts of pressure and responsibility. Uh, I think of a preschool teacher. I would never want to do the job of a preschool teacher. That is a lot of pressure. Uh, you've got uh, uh, 27 kids that moms and dads think they're wonderful. Grandma and grandpas think they're angels. And the truth is, if you turn your back to them, they'd slit your throat for a nickel. They'd, uh, uh, they'd, they'd run away. They'd do all kinds. I mean, that, that's pressure. At the end of the day, if all 27 kids that came out of your class walk out of your class, that's been a successful day. I mean, there's some... There's a significant amount of pressure on teachers. Uh, there's significant amount of pressures on nurses and, uh, uh, that would work in the medical field and, and have to deal with, with uh, sometimes just really gross stuff and then sometimes really, really scary stuff. And, and uh, the, the administration of medication. My daughter is, is studying nursing now, and, and it's interesting. And she goes, Dad, I hate math. She goes, I'm learning there's a lot of math in being a nurse, and you have to have the right amount of medication. And she said that with such shock. That worries me just a little that she said that with such shock that, that there's a big difference. I don't even know, you know, between 500 cc's of morphine and like 50 cc's. I mean, don't confuse the two. That's a, that's a big deal. Um, surgeons would, I think, be another level of pressure and, and literally lives are in their hands. The trauma surgeons and, and people who would work in, in uh, emergency surgeries and, 
And if they do something right, they have the opportunity to save someone's life. If they, they do something wrong, they have the opportunity to, to end, unfortunately, someone's life. And so there's, there's a lot of pressure on them in that the person that's on the table literally is in their hands. So uh, being a pilot would be a, a pressure-packed situation. And, and I know with modern equipment and, and so forth, it's, it's probably easier to fly now than it's ever been. But the pressure is still there. You are responsible for the 150 people or 200 people, however it might be, uh, people on that plane. You are responsible for their safety and uh, you do something wrong and, and a computer uh, gives you false information or whatnot and, and uh, you could be responsible for their deaths and their injuries. To that end, I believe one of the most uh, pressure-filled uh, uh, jobs is that of an air traffic controller. And not only are you the pilot where you're in charge of that plane as an air traffic controller, you're in charge of the pilots that are in charge of all of those planes. And so you, you literally have tens of thousands of people a day. So much so, I, this is again according to Google, uh, you're forced into retirement at age 56 as an air traffic controller. You cannot be of advanced age at all as an air traffic controller because they, your, your mind has to operate so fast and you're responsible for so many people. There's a lot of pressure on these various jobs. And here's the basic reason for the pressure. Because they are responsible for the lives of other people. No, no, this is significant. We can't move on from this. There's pressure on them. It's, it's a pressure-packed job because they are responsible for the lives of other people. Now, if that's what makes a job pressure-packed, and that's what makes a job uh, 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 more difficult, if you will, then how much more so is if a person's not responsible for the lives of other people, but a person is responsible for the eternities of other people? Now, that's a different level of pressure. That's a, a different level of responsibility. Can I tell you tonight, according to the Word of God, while there are many people involved in your lives and many people involved in the ministry of Valley Avenue Baptist Church, there is one person that will be held accountable for the ministry of Valley Avenue Baptist Church. And that's Pastor Barry. He is ultimately the one who will give an account of everything that happens here and everyone that's a member here. There is a lot of pressure on him that we might not recognize or first realize. Now, before we continue on, I want to say this again. I want to stress, ministry is the greatest job in the world, number one. Number two, Pastor Barry did not tell me to preach this. I'm hoping he wants me to at the end, but I did not ask me to preach this. I'd like to look at pressures that exist on leadership. In our text tonight, it's kind of a, a familiar story. Uh, Saul does the wrong thing. Come on, Saul does the wrong thing. It's very significant. Saul does the wrong thing. Nothing that I say tonight will distract or detract or take away from that fact that Saul does the wrong thing. Saul is wrong, Saul is wrong, Saul is wrong, Saul is wrong, Saul is wrong. The Philistine army, Jonathan has stirred up a hornet's nest. He's kind of, I liken it to he's the associate pastor that wrote the check that now the pastor has to cash. Come on, Brother Andrew knows what that's like. He, he caused the trouble and Brother Marshall's the one that has to fix it. And, and now Brother Mike's here and you're going to cause trouble and then he's going to have to fix it and that's just... That's the role of the pastor's responsibility. And so, uh, stirring up trouble, and, and the Philistine armies now come against them, and so they call out, and he cries out, and asks for his men to come back, and the men, by and large, do not come back, and, and uh, he's waiting for Samuel to show up, and he makes a bad decision. He makes a poor decision. In the pressure of the moment, 
he decides to change God's rules and change God's commands, and he makes a sacrifice that he's not allowed to make. That was only for the priest to make the burnt offering sacrifice. He is not a priest, and so he makes the sacrifice. He does the wrong thing. He does the wrong thing. He does the wrong thing. Saul is 100% to blame. Saul answers to God. Saul does the wrong thing. He does the wrong thing. He does the wrong thing. If I haven't told you yet tonight, Saul is 100% wrong. Saul's wrong. Okay, we're getting the hint. We're not, we're not justifying. We're not excusing. No, no, we live in a world that passes the buck all the time. Yeah. Come on, that blames other people and nothing's our fault. And, and uh, the reason why I am the way I am is because my parents did something to me when I was a little kid or, or because I have a chemical imbalance or I have a this or that. No, 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 no. Saul's 100% wrong. Saul is 100% wrong. And I find it interesting that right after he makes the sacrifice, Samuel shows up. Uh, if he could have just held on just a little bit longer, uh, Samuel shows up. Saul goes out to meet him, and Samuel says the question, asks him the question, what hast thou done? Why did you do this? And Saul responds with three reasons in verse number 11 why he did what he did. Saul is 100% wrong, but his answers show the pressure that he was under, and maybe will give us a little bit of understanding of sometimes the pressure that a pastor is under. Notice if you would in verse number 11. And Samuel said, What hast thou done? And Saul said, Because I saw that the people were scattered from me. Samuel said, or Saul said to Samuel, I had to do something because the people were scattered from me. The congregation had dwindled, and because the congregation had dwindled, I was forced to do something. Now that's just a statement, but let's go back and put some numbers with it. Look back at chapter number 11 and verse number 8. Chapter number 11 and verse number 8. And when he numbered them in Bezek, the children of Israel were 300,000, and the men of Judah 30,000. So in chapter 11 and verse number 8, there's 330,000 soldiers. In chapter 13, verse number 2, Saul chose him out 3,000 men of Israel, whereof 2,000 were with Saul and Michmash and Mount Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan and Gibeah of Benjamin, and the rest of the people he sent every man to his tent. So he goes from 330,000 people to 3,000 people. He sends the rest of the people home. Then he calls them back, but the Bible says that not many of them come back because they're hiding. Chapter 13 and verse number 15. And Samuel arose and got him up from Gilgal unto Gibeah of Benjamin. And Saul numbered the people that were present with him, <clears throat> about 600 men. So he's gone from a fighting force of 330,000 men to a fighting force of 3,000 sort of special forces men to a fighting force of about 600 men. I find it interesting, it's specific numbers until we get to the 600. There I figure it's Baptist counting. What's Baptist counting? Around 600. What does that mean? 518. Come on. How many did you have in church last Sunday? Oh, it was almost 100. It was 62. It's almost 100. Come on. That's how Baptists count. That's how, that's, how, that's how we do it. And so he goes, we've gone from 330,000 men to 3,000 men to now about 600 men. And he goes, I had to do something. I was desperate, Samuel. The people were leaving. The people were fleeing. No one was coming when I called. No one responded to my invitation. No one was responding to my leadership. And in desperation, I did the wrong thing. But I had to do something. You know what I used to think about liberal churches or churches that went, yeah, I, nah, this is an official kind of a Hebrew term, but cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs? When people go off the deep end in church, you know, they start the happy clappy and they get the fog machine and the skinny jeans and they get rid of the pulpit and all that kind of kind of. Here's what I always thought. Here's what I thought that that guy was always a liberal. 
No, no, but secretly, like in, in college. He, he managed to go even to maybe to a good college, but he was secretly a closet liberal and, and uh, uh, just reckless, and he, he hid it from everybody, and he graduated, and he, he got hired on at some church, and he was a liberal. And I mean, he, he every once in a while, little bits of liberality would slip out, but he hid it. And, and then he finally candidated a church, and, and he snookered them, and he, and he took the church, and the whole while he was like, ha-ha, I can't wait to turn this sucker into a liberal church. And, and then eventually he sprang his liberality on that's a possibility. It's still a possibility that that happened. You know what? More than likely, according to our text and according to experience, more likely what happens, a pastor takes a church and the church begins to go down and attendance begins to dwindle and things begin to not be so good and people don't respond to his invitations and he can't get people to come and he can't get people to become faithful and he does the wrong thing. No, 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 no. He does the wrong thing and he's not justified in doing the wrong thing because we're never justified in doing the wrong thing. But I'm just telling you, there's a whole lot of people that have put pressure on the pastor to do the wrong thing when they simply do not show up when he calls them to the battle. Come on. Come on. In our town, there are three, or there were three independent Baptist churches. Fort Collins is 185,000 people. Uh, uh, we run about 150, 170, somewhere in there. So there's a couple people we're not reaching. You'll catch that joke a little bit later, but that's okay. So there's room for other independent Baptist churches. We're, we have good relationships and whatnot. So a family, a, a church in town, uh, changed, and they were such and such a Baptist church, and now they're called The Bridge. They, they, they changed, and they, they are called The Bridge. And so a family left their church, began attending our church. I called their pastor to talk to their pastor about that. Uh, uh, look, ethics don't really cost much. Come on, it doesn't, doesn't take long to, to, to call and to do that. And so I'm trying to, trying to have good ethics. And he goes, well, Brother Sutton, he goes, you've probably seen our sign. And I said, yes, sir, I've seen your sign. You went from such and such a Baptist church to The Bridge. And he goes, yes, sir. He said, uh, we had to commit. He said, uh, uh, we have our, our uh, contemporary service at 9. And he said, we had our... Uh, uh, our traditional service at 1030 and uh, 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 he goes but suddenly I've been the pastor here for 17 years and for 17 years every year we've had less people attend than the year before for 17 years he said I didn't want to do this but I had to do something he did the wrong thing come on he, he did the wrong thing and he'll answer to God for doing the wrong thing but so will every one of his parishioners, so will every one of the church members who did not come when he called and did not attend the services and willingly absenced themselves from the house of God. They put pressure on him to do something he had no business doing. And someday he will answer to God for that, and someday they will answer to God. Whenever you don't come to a service that you could come to, you're actually voting to cancel that service. Then you go, well, I don't, I don't really come on Sunday nights because you know we don't do. You know what you're saying is, I wish we didn't have Sunday night services. By not coming, you're putting pressure. So, so someday, whoa, 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 there are some people. If Pastor Barry stood up, oh my goodness, it would be an uproar. If Pastor Barry stood up and said, hey, guess what? We're going to cancel Sunday night church services. People would be like, oh, he's a liberal. He's. A... Oh, by the way, you should, you should, you should. But if you haven't been coming, you don't really have much of a leg to stand on. You've been putting pressure on him to, to, to do that, to cancel the service. It's all kinds of pressure. Notice the, the verbiage again of our, of our King James Bible. He says, because I saw that the people were scattered from me. He didn't say the people were scattered from Israel. He didn't say the people were scattered from the fight. He didn't say the people were scattered from the nation. He said the people were scattered from me. Because no matter what you say, how you phrase it, what kind of smile you put on it, or how much money you drop in the offering plate, the pastor takes it personally when you don't show up. 
and there's no way that he can. Just some statistics. I want to read you some statistics about pastoral leadership and, and some things that have taken place. Uh, since 2018 to 2023, the median uh, attendance in Baptist churches in America, the median-sized church in America, has gone from 125 to 67. So in the last five years, the, the median, meaning half above and half below, not just the average, but the half above and half below, has gone from 125 down to 67. 70% of pastors say that they have a lower self-esteem now uh, that they, than they did when they entered the ministry. 70% of pastors say they fight depression on a weekly basis. 50% say that they, uh, on a weekly basis, think of quitting. This one blows my mind. This one's the, the saddest to me. 80% believe that the ministry has negatively affected their families. 80% of ministry spouses feel unappreciated, and 65% say they, uh, families feel like they live in a glass house. That's a pressure that exists on the pastor. Well, I mean, he's a man of God. He should do it. Absolutely. Did I mention Saul was wrong? Did I mention Saul was wrong? Did I mention Saul was wrong? Saul's wrong. Saul's wrong. Saul's wrong. And if Pastor Barry ever quits, if he ever compromises, if he ever shames, he's 100% wrong. And the person who put pressure on him to do it, so are you. So every year uh, we have faith promise and everything, but every year we do what we call a vision fund offering and we uh, try to raise money for various projects in the church, maybe be buying a bus or, or you know, paving a parking lot, whatever it is. We try along with that to do something for another church that might not have the money to do that for themselves. So we, we pick a project, a church plant, and uh, last year, year before, we uh, rebuilt the uh, platform for uh, Brother Brian Ricker, if you know him, there in, uh, in Lafayette, Colorado. And so we just try to do stuff for other churches. And one year I got the bright idea, at least I thought it was the bright idea, that we would honor pastors in the state of Colorado that had been in ministry for 50 plus years. So every Sunday in the month of October, we brought in a different pastor and had them challenge us on what it takes to be faithful and, and be a blessing. We gave him a, a real good love offering, gave his wife a love offering and flowers and all those. We just tried to honor, we call it honoring the faithful and honorable. And with that, I asked them a series of questions and had them give those answers to the people. And one of the questions was, what was the most difficult thing in ministry? All five preachers, it was a five-week Sunday, a uh, 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 five-Sunday month, all five <laughs> pastors said the exact same thing. The most difficult thing in ministry is trying to get people to be faithful who just won't be faithful. All five, I asked, what's the biggest blessing in ministry? And they said, seeing people saved. And then they said, just seeing them grow and be faithful and just come to church and just, just show up and, and just be there and just smile and just do, do what you're supposed to do. And be, you go, Brother Park, you can't, you, you can't make me. I don't have, no, 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 that, that's the point. Saul couldn't make them. But when they didn't show up, Saul took it personally. Telling tonight, you put pressure on leadership that doesn't need to be there when you just don't show up. Number one, he says, because I saw that the people were scattered from me. Number two, and thou camest not within the days appointed. He goes, Samuel, I waited for you. You said you were going to come, and then you didn't come when you said you were going to come. Look back, if you would, at chapter number 10 and verse number 8. Chapter 10 and verse number 8. We're looking at the words of Samuel here. Samuel tells Saul, And thou shalt go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I will come down unto thee to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice sacrifices of peace offerings. Seven days shalt thou tarry till I come to thee and show thee what thou shalt do. Now back to chapter 13 
and verse number 8. And he tarried seven days, according to the set time that Samuel had appointed. But Samuel came not to Gilgal, and the people were scattered from him. Saul, number one, says the people were scattered. I, I had to do something. I, I was desperate. Our, our attendance was dwindling. People were, were leaving. I, I was desperate. I had to do something. And then he goes, number two, Samuel, you didn't do what you said you would do. You know, the second thing that puts pressure on a pastor is when the people in the congregation won't do what they said they're going to do. What do you mean? Well, I mean, when you say you're going to, I don't know, run the Sunday school bus, and then you don't. Or you're going to teach that class, and you don't. Or you're going to sing in the choir, and then you don't. Come on, don't, don't look at me like I'm crazy here, like I'm making stuff up out of whole cloth, just pulling this out of my ear. No, 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 no. When you, tell, when you tell your pastor you're going to do something, and then you don't do it, that puts undue pressure on him to try to figure something out. You know, by and large, I don't know, uh, the, the, the building's been clean. I have no idea how you do things, so I don't know if you hire somebody to clean the building. I have no idea how you do it. People volunteer at our church. People volunteer. But it's not uncommon that somebody will volunteer to clean the church building, and, and then they'll, they'll maybe on a Friday, they'll call and they'll go, you know what, preacher, we were supposed to clean the church, and, and, uh, uh, but my, my son's football game went long, and, and we're kind of tired, so we're not going to be able to get to it. And, and so we just want to let you know. And typically, a pastor will say something like this, well, okay, we understand, not a problem, and we'll get it taken care of. And can I just tell you the definition of we'll get it taken care of? Can I tell you what that means? That means my wife's going to end up doing it. So you said you're going to deliver a meal to that family who lost a loved one, and then you don't, and the pastor says, well, we'll take care of it. I'm just going to tell you what that means. That means Mrs. Barry's going to take care of it. Come on, it, it's got, it got real quiet in here. I don't know if we're, the, first, the first point you guys are perfectly okay with, perhaps because it's a Tuesday night of mission, or a, a revival meeting and you're here, so you're obviously faithful. But maybe this is the second point. This, we, I don't know. I feel like we've got maybe a raccoon treat on this one here. And dogs are barking and, and got a little tense. You said you're going to give X amount to missions conference. Uh, missions conference. Come on, you just said missions month. You said by faith, I'm planning on giving this much. And that means you're 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 going to give that, and, and and so the church makes plans for that. The church the church voted Sunday night to 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 take on the new missionary the, to, to 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 where to Sudan. Uh, oh yeah yeah. Uh, uh, thing brother Hainline to to Sudan and and the flights and and so forth. And so he makes that call. By the way, that's one of the funnest phone calls to make as a pastor Amen. when you call the missionary and say, "Hey, we've decided as a church we're going to support you and you've got money coming and uh, you guys can eat this week." And yeah, it's kind of a fun phone call to make. You know what's not a phone call to make? We we can't pay you this month. Or uh, we're supposed to pay all of our missionaries $100. I have no idea how you guys do it. We're supposed to pay all of our missionaries $100, but this month everybody's going to get a check for $78.79 because some people didn't do what they said they were going to. Come on. Well, Brother Park, that was before I lost my job. Yeah, yeah, but the, you don't do what you say you're going to do, and now the pastor puts pressure on the pastor to try to come up with something and do something desperate and do something foolish because you didn't, you, you didn't do what you said you were going to do. You said you were going to make that visit. You, that family came, and you were going to follow up and make that visit, and then you didn't follow up and make that visit, and then it looks like the church doesn't care, and then it, nobody, nobody looks at you. Everybody looks at the pastor and goes, well, how come that visit wasn't made? How come, how come that wasn't done? You, 
And the pastor can't really get up and say, well, I mean, I will just pick on Brother Andrew because he's a guest here tonight, too. You know, he's going to go home. It doesn't really matter. And, and so you go, well, it's Brother Andrew's fault. Brother Andrew said he'd make the visit. Brother Andrew didn't make the visit. Brother Andrew's the dirty, rotten rat. No, no, he can't do that. Brother Andrew, he, he's just got to get up and kind of cover for you because he's a pastor and he loves you. And he doesn't want to out you. He doesn't want to publicly make a spectacle about you or make it look like he's casting off his responsibility. But the fact of the matter is, it has nothing to do with what he did and everything to do with the fact that you didn't do what you said you were going to do. The Bible says a righteous man swears to his own hurt and alters not. You tell the pastor you're going to do something. I understand. Listen, cars break down, kids go to the hospital. Uh, don't, don't, you know, call from the from the from the mortuary this next week and be like, "Well, my husband died, so we can't clean the church." That's an excuse. We understand that. That's a good reason. That's a valid reason. But most of the time, the things we don't do when we say we're going to do put pressure on him that doesn't need to be. You go over the park, he's young, he can take it. I found it interesting. I've never thought of this before. Uh, I've preached this message several times in several churches. But chapter 13, verse 1, Saul reigned one year. And when he had reigned two years over Israel. Saul was pretty early on in his leadership too. Saul was pretty on in his leadership too. You go, Pastor Barry needs to earn it. No, no, no. If God has placed him in that position, he doesn't need to earn anything. He already has. He already has. He doesn't need to earn that responsibility. He's already been called to that responsibility, and he's worthy of being given credit for that responsibility. So Saul says three things. Number one, he says, the people were scattered from me. Number two, thou camest not within the days appointed. And number three, and the Philistines gathered themselves together at Michmash. He goes, I, 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 the, by the way, the first two things were internal. There's far more pressure on a pastor inside these four walls than outside these four walls. What do you mean? There's 4,000 people-ish in this town. Um, there's 80 that come to this church. So just quick math, that means there's 3,920 people outside and there's about 80 people inside. By far, the more pressure that will be placed on him is by the people that are inside than the people that are outside. Now, the people that are outside, I don't just mean this in this town, in this city, I mean in America. America's gotten crazy. Come on. I mean, COVID, government, crime, wackadoo, people not know if they're a boy or girl, they don't. They were one this morning, they're the other this afternoon. I mean, just come on. It's, it's, it's gotten crazy out there. So notice how crazy it had gotten out there here in our text. So he says, I, I saw that the Philistines were gathered together, uh, gathered themselves together at McMahon. Well, back in verse number five, we're told about that gathering. And the Philistines gathered themselves together to fight with Israel. 30,000 chariots. This afternoon, when uh, we went to, or this morning, excuse me, when we went to breakfast, there was a couple of tanks outside of the restaurant where we ate there, and, and uh, I just, I, I, I missed them somehow. When we went inside, I was like, I didn't even see them. I came outside, and I was like, did tanks pull up while we were? <laughs> it shows how observant I am, and, and uh, uh, chariots back then would have been like tanks. No, no, for, for the vast majority of history, no army won unless they had more horsemen or more, or more, more, more chariots. There's 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen. 30,000 men in chariots and 6,000 horsemen and people as the sand which is on the seashore in multitude. I, I, I looked that up as well. Google said that's somewhere between three and 4,000 people. <laughs> Google is not saved. Okay, Google, Google, Google's not safe. It's multiple hundreds of thousands of people. Multiple hundreds of thousands of people. So Saul's standing there and he goes, okay, I'm looking at 30,000 chariots, I'm looking at 6,000 horsemen, I'm looking at hundreds of thousands of soldiers. 
Huh? What do we got? Verse 15. About 600 men. So 518? Yep. Okay, what kind of armament we got? What kind of chariots we got? What kind of horsemen we got? What kind of... Verse 22. So it came to pass in the day of battle that there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people that were with Saul and Jonathan, but with Saul and with Jonathan his son was there found. What? Two. How many men? About 600. How many swords? Two. 200? Two. We have 600 men and two, two swords. What in the world? I heard tell uh, in the history books in World War I, Russia was not uncommon. When Russia sent men to war, they would send two men with one gun. And they would tell the guy, when your partner gets shot, then pick up his gun. I'm not going to war without a gun. I'm, I'm not going to do that. I'm not, I'm not going... Well, if I am, I'm going to go with the big guy, so he's an easy target. I'm going to, I'm going to stand behind him, let, let him get clipped. and then. But you've got 600 men-ish that are going up against 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and several hundred thousand men, and there's 600 dudes with two swords. Now, hold on. You don't, you don't think a pastor gets desperate? when he looks at what needs to be done or what he's fighting against and he turns around and looks at what he has to work with? You go over the park, that's not really fair of them. Uh, that, that, that's all that they had. If that's all that they had, that's, that's all they can give. But is that really all that they have? Look back if you would in verse number 2. Saul chose him 3,000 men of Israel, whereof 2,000 were with Saul and Michmash and in Mount Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan and Gibeah, and the rest of the people who sent every man to his tent. And Jonathan smote the garrison of the Philistines that was in Geba. So Jonathan had just defeated a garrison of the Philistines. Where was their armament? Oh, the Philistines weren't out there without swords. Come on, the Philistines weren't out there without swords. And then back in chapter number 11, and in, in uh, uh, oh, excuse me, it's, it's not chapter number, uh, where did it go? Yeah, chapter 11 and verse number 11. It says, And so it was on the morrow that Saul put the people in three companies, and they came into the midst of the host of the morning watch, and slew the Ammonites until the heat of the day. So, in chapter number 11 and verse number 11, Saul, with 330,000 soldiers, goes to war against the Ammonite army, and it takes them from the morning until midday to slay them all. It's a significant battle that takes place until the heat of the day, and it came to pass that they which remained together uh, uh, were scattered so that uh, two of them were not left together. So here's my question. Saul had slain the Ammonites. Jonathan had slain the Philistines. Where were all the swords and spears from the Philistines and the Ammonites? And the answer was, they were with the people that were hiding in the caves and in the thickets and in the hills or refused to report the battle. Maybe we could simplify it and say it this way. The people who had the most to offer were the people least willing to offer it. The people who had access to the swords and the spears 
and the armament from the victory over the, the Philistine garrison and the victory over the Ammonite armament. They didn't even have the courage to show up. And so Saul turns and looks and goes, I got 600 people and I got two swords. Meanwhile, I have 328, there are 329,000 some odd people that are hiding in caves. Some have even joined the Philistine army and are fighting with them. And they took their swords and their spears with them. Every church I've ever pastored, which is one, every church I've ever pastored, it's been true of every church I've ever been around. Sometimes the people who are capable of contributing the most, and I'm, I'm intentionally, I'm not looking at the, I'm trying to look away from you and not make eye contact, and now I just realize I'm staring right into the camera. Um, sometimes the people capable of contributing the most contribute the least. a man in the course of our ministry that, that every so often, about, about every three or four years, um, he, he likes to give, and he, he'll bring it in cash, and he'll bring it during the week. He doesn't put it in the offering, he doesn't, he'll bring it in cash, and he'll bring it during the week, and he'll just show up at church, and he'll be like, hey pastor, the uh, Lord told me he wants me to give, and so here's, here's $5,000 for the church, and, and by the way, I'm never like, you jerk. I'm like, well praise the Lord, amen, that's good. But you know what? We have, we have retired, single, widow women in our church that give way more than that. Because they give every week. Come on. They give sacrificially every week. And the people, he owns his own business. He, he's capable of doing much, much more. And he'll tell me, no, no, I don't tithe. I don't, I don't believe in tithing. I just, I just give whatever the Lord tells me to give. And I'm sure it's much more than a tithe. Well, I'm sorry, but I, I doubt very seriously $5,000 every three years equals your tithe. Yeah. Well, it, just, it just doesn't. And you're putting pressure. Hold on. No, no. When Brother Barry looks out and he looks at, at the other churches in town and he looks at, 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 come on, the Catholic church that has the football team and the, and the massive building and the buses that go out and pick everybody up and, 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 and money and money and money and money and money. And he turns around and he goes, what do we have to work with? Well, we got the church bus out there, the church van out there that was, come on, we have this, we have, and he goes, okay, so I'm supposed to compete with that. Well, he's not supposed to compete. He's, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. You can think that all you want, but that's not how a pastor thinks. I live right across the street from Timberline in town. Timberline is the biggest church in town. 6,000, a 6,000 seat auditorium. They have six services. They max it out. Six services every weekend. They max it out. I, I look at their budget. I look at their vehicles. I look at their, uh, what they have. And I look at our budget and I look at what we have and I go, I, I, I'm supposed to compete. Come on. And if that's all you have, then that's all you have. But it's sad that that wasn't all that they had. That was all that was willing to be given. And uh, pastors are miracle workers, but they can't make chicken soup out of a sow's ear. Some of you have heard that expression before. Some of you haven't, but but nonetheless, here's how serious it is. Here's how serious it is. Notice if you will in verse number thirteen. And Samuel said to Saul, "Thou hast done foolishly." We haven't mentioned it in a while, so I just want to interject again. Saul was wrong. Saul was wrong. Saul was wrong. And Samuel said to Saul, Thou hast done foolishly. Thou hast not kept the commandment of the Lord thy God, which He commanded thee. For now would the Lord have established thy kingdom upon Israel forever. Forever was changed because of the pressure that they put on Saul. 
No, no. Samuel tells him, God said, if you would have handled this pressure correctly, if you would have handled this circumstance correctly, you and your kids would have sat on the throne in Israel forever. Well, what about David? That Now we're getting into the sovereignty of God. God already knew that Saul wouldn't, and so God already ordained a, a replacement. Come on, God knows everything. God didn't call Saul to do this, by the way. God just knows everything, and his foreknowledge is key to his, his reaction. But he said, had you handled this, you would serve, and your kids would serve, and your grandkids would serve. You know why this is a big deal? This isn't a big deal because of Pastor Chad Berry. This is a big deal because of these kids. What do you mean? How is that a big deal? No, no. You put pressure on him to compromise. You put pressure on him to change. And it may be that the church that your grandkids inherit won't be the same church that you got to go to. No, 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 no. There'll, there'll be a band up there. There'll be a fog machine up there. There'll be laser lights up there. There'll be. There won't be a pulpit up there. They'll, come on. And you mark it down. You mark it down. No, no. He's wrong. He's wrong. He's wrong. He's wrong. He's wrong. And so is everyone that put pressure on. So is everyone that put pressure on. I have made mention of this often this week, and so I'll say it maybe five more times. Um, I have a very vivid imagination. So I read this passage, and here's, 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 here's what I think. I don't know who Saul's confidant is, who his, who his right-hand man is, and he's, he's walking around, and he's talking. He's like, do you, do you see how many, how many chariots? 30,000 chariots. How, how many horsemen? 6,000 horsemen. How many people? I can't count that high. We need a new person. We need a new counter. That's what we need. How many people we have? About 600. Okay. But how many swords and spears and like chariots and stuff we have? Two swords. You have one. Jonathan has one. You know how you know how punch in the gut that must have been to realize that the people who could have contributed weren't. And he goes, I, I don't want to do this. I don't want to change worship. Literally, that's what he was doing, was changing worship. I don't want to change worship. I, I, I don't want to do this. But I feel forced to do this. I feel compelled to do this. Go, go get me the lamb. Go, go, go get me the animal. I'm, I'm going to make the sacrifice. And that's exactly what happened. That's exactly what happened. Here, here's what I wonder what would happen. If some men would have been like, Saul, don't. 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 I know you're under pressure. I, I know you feel like you've got to do something. I know you're scared. I know you're nervous. I, I, I know we're with you. Don't. Wait. Wait just a little bit longer. They would not have had to delay him for very long. Read the text again. And, and the Bible says, uh, verse number 10, and it came to pass as soon as he had made an end of offering the burnt offering, the whole Samuel came. They could have held him off an hour. They could have held him off an hour. Samuel, Saul would have been king forever. His descendants would have been king forever. If they, if, they could, if they could have stood with him and been loyal to him for one hour, I wonder what would have happened if they just said, Saul, don't do wrong. Let's trust God and we'll die with you. We'll die with you. No, no. We'll, 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 we'll stay at Valley Avenue Baptist Church. We'll, we'll live or die. We'll, we'll ride or die. We're, we're, we're with you till the bitter end. If nobody else comes, we'll come. If nobody else's families come, we'll be there. Preacher, we're with you. We'll back you. We'll, we'll, we'll support you. We'll love you. We'll love on your family. We'll love on your kids. We'll, we'll, we'll support you with everything we got. You, if we tell you we're going to do something, we're going to do it. Preacher, don't do this. Don't do this. Don't do this. Don't do it. Hey, there comes Samuel. How much different would it have been? Can we fast forward to 2023 and just ask yourself the question, how much different is this church going to be in this generation, the next generation, and the next generation if there's some people in the pew that rally behind your pastor 
or some people in the pew to put pressure on your pastor. Well, Brother Park, this message isn't very encouraging. It is for your pastor. It is if you'll follow it. Because, it, listen, there's just, there's just something wonderful. There's just something wonderful about a congregation that will rally around behind the man of God and say, sink or swim, for better or for worse, we're with you. We're with you. We're with you. I feel obligated to interject. Not when he's wrong. He's theologically wrong. He's morally wrong. We're not talking about the 1980s when we rallied behind preachers and just ignored their sin. No, no, we're not talking about that. We're talking about as long as he's right. As long as he's right. As long as he's right. So we're already a little bit late, so we'll just tell a quick story and then, then we'll be done. So I'm a youth pastor in Maryland. And uh, uh, God bless us. We've got a good-sized youth group. And we went to McDonald's because, I mean, that's what spiritual people do if there's not a, if there's not a Taco Bell around. And so we go, we go to McDonald's and... And while we're at this McDonald's, one of our young ladies uh, uh, named Jamie McFate, Jamie McFate came over and uh, she goes, uh, Brother Park, she goes, uh, she's about 16, she goes, some guys are, are making inappropriate comments on, on the other side of the restaurant, some, not our group, some, some, some guys. And so I, I tell her to stay there, I tell her, our kids to stay there, and I just went over to see what was going on. And there were three college-age guys, I'm guessing 22, 23, 24, something like that, and they're, they're walking out to their car. And it wasn't the brightest idea. I'm not, I'm not saying I should have done this or this was the wisest thing to do at all. But I just stepped outside. I said, excuse me, guys. I said, uh, 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 it's my understanding that you're making some, some inappropriate comments to a teenage girl. I mean, come on. We, we can do better than that. You know, just that wasn't threatening them or anything, really. Um, and, and they began to, to, to mouth off and, and curse and swear and, and, and whatnot. And I, again, this is, I'm not professing that this was wise or Christian. I was the associate pastor, so it was okay. I wasn't the pastor, I was the associate pastor. And I, I said something to the effect of, well, you're really big cursing me out across the parking lot. Why don't you three come over here and curse me out? Because that was spirit-led. That was spirit-led. And I'll remember this the, the rest of my life. If I, if, I, if I have dementia, this will be the last thing that, that exits my mind. He goes, well, you're really tough with all those guys standing behind you. I go, guys standing behind me? And I turn around and look, and at that time in our youth group, we had, we had a group we called them the Mod Squad. There was about 15 guys that were all in the eighth grade. And they're all standing behind me. And I still remember Todd, Todd Mock, who's now pastoring in Pennsylvania. Todd Mock is standing behind me like this. And he's, and he, and he's like five foot two, maybe 85 pounds. And he's like, and they're like, mighty big talk when you got all those guys behind you. And I turn around and saw those guys. And to this day, I'm telling you, to this day, I'm just like, whoo, those guys were behind me. I, in, a, in a fight, they could have at least taken a punch while I got mine in. That, that's, all, that's all they could have done. You know what it would do for your pastor to rally behind him tonight, rally behind him this week, and say, I, 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 I may be the 8th grade boy, I may, I may be the 14-year-old boy, I, I, I may be the 68-year-old single lady in the church, but I'm telling you, preacher, I got your back. You preach the book, 
You stand for what's right. You try to preach the gospel and reach people in, in this city and around the Amen. world for Jesus Christ. And as long as you're doing that, I'll be faithful. I'll be here Sunday morning. I'll be here Sunday night. I'll be here Wednesday night. You have revival meetings. I'll come. You have Pats the Pirate. I'll come. You have special meetings. I'll come. You have fall festivals. I'll come. You have trunk or treat. I'll come. Whatever it is you have, I will be there. I will cheer you on. I will back you. I will love on your kids. Come on. I will love on your kids. I will help your kids. I will not hold your kids to a different standard than we hold my kids or your kids or any of the bus kids. Come on. Yeah. I, I, I'll love on your wife and make sure that she doesn't bear the yeah. brunt of the responsibility of everything that goes wrong in the church. And I will back you and I will follow you. And I just, I just got to think there's going to be a significant difference, just like there was with Saul. They'll be with Pastor Dick. We never got to see what would have happened with Saul had the congregation rallied behind him. I hope we get to see what happens at Valley Avenue Baptist Church. Amen. And Pastor Chad there with the congregation around him behind him. What did he tell you? Nothing but good things. Nothing. Promise you, nothing but good things. But there's pressure on him. There's pressure. There's just natural pressure. But it should come from out there. It shouldn't, it should not come from you. You ought to back him and love him and support him and see if it doesn't make a, a difference generationally. Saul has already answered to God for the fact he caved and was wrong when the pressure came. So has every one of the nation of Israel that put pressure on him when they should have been backing him. Heads back. Eyes closed. Lord, I love you. I love the ministry. I wouldn't trade Calvary Baptist Temple for any other church in the world. I wouldn't trade my job for any job in the world. Lord, I, I believe I mean that as I say it. Lord, I don't. I don't just speak it. I, I believe I mean it. I pray, Lord, you'd help this church to rally behind their pastor. Lord, I, I realize tonight even the Riverside is here. I pray that they would rally behind their pastor. Lord, it doesn't mean you excuse things that are wrong. Lord, when they're wrong, they're wrong. We're not, we're not advocating that. We're not, we're not talking about turning a blind eye. We're talking about getting behind the pastor and backing him and encouraging him. And, and Lord, if one can slay a thousand, then two can set ten thousand to fly. May He never, Lord, lack the resources. May, may He never lack, Lord, what He needs and what, what the people of this congregation fully have capable of providing. Lord, may they rally behind Him and help Him. I pray, Lord, You bless this church. You bless Pastor Barry. Thank You for his, his dedication, Lord. What a joy it is to hear of Him talking of His desires to spend His life here, to raise His kids here, to, to make this His home and not, not just a, a stopping ground on the way over to somewhere else. Lord, I, I pray You bless Him. Bless this message and may it, Lord, uh, be used for your honor and glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We stand tonight to our feet. Piano plays.